We're back in our series, That Guy, Hey Guy, and I'm excited to preach this morning. In May of 2006, Bimbala Das married a snake, a cobra to be precise. Some of you say, sounds better than what I married. Now, just keep looking at me. Because Hindus venerate cobras, the residents of Alata, India, believed that Mrs. Dye's serpentine would bring good luck to their town. Committing on her relationship with the snake, Dye said, we communicate in a peculiar way. Apparently so, as snake charmers were not able to lure the cobra out of his home for the wedding, instead a bronze replica was used as a stand-in. It's crazy, church. As crazy as that story sounds, as ridiculous as that that story sounds, it's crazy the things we will do for good luck. It's crazy the lengths we will go in order to get positive vibes or simply good vibes. I'm still not coming through. Like the lucky penny some of us use to scratch off our lottery ticket. Yeah. <laughs> not going to talk to me this morning. A penny that some of you use. Those numbers you play every, every week. Dollar straight, dollar box. Uh, some of y'all are going to act like y'all don't know what I'm talking about. That's all right. Okay, that didn't work. Or that special outfit you wear on every date night. Or that thing grandma or grandpa gave you as a good luck charm. You keep it in your car everywhere you go. So no evil comes your way. Good luck charms can be anything from four-leaf clovers to rabbit's foots to pocket lighters to numbers or colors. And what is the meaning of these good luck charms? The definition of a good luck charm is something that is worn or or kept typically as a necklace to magically keep bad things away from you or to bring good things your way. The issue I have with lucky charms is that many think a lucky charm allows them the comfort and pleasure to go and live their life however they want to live, and somehow the lucky charm is a repellent against any of their evil deeds or lack of commitment, or lack of character, or or lack of faithfulness. Lucky charms can't replace working on your marriage, stewarding your money, treating people right, having patience. When I land at yours, just say amen. Even if y'all don't talk to me this morning, I came to preach even if I got to preach to myself. We hope that lucky charms will bring us all the fortune without us having to change. I don't know if it's just me, but every time I say lucky charm, I think of that cereal. I don't know. I don't know if I'm the only one in the room thinking that. Some of y'all want a bowl of cereal right now. Like lucky charm. That's what I kept saying. I, was, I may not use that because everybody's going to be thinking about cereal in the room. <clears throat> That's the unspiritual people falling for the bowl of cereal. The rest of us, 
the more sanctified. We didn't think about Lucky Charms. How many of you say, Pastor, based on what you said so far, I'm all right and I'm okay because I don't have any good luck charms. But many of us have downgraded God down to a good luck charm. God is something we keep in our back pockets with the hope that he will keep bad away but good coming. So many so-called Christians think that they can live how they want to live, live outside of the guidelines of Scripture for their lives, yet if they just pray or if they serve in the church or wear a cross or come to church, that God will act as their lucky charm. They truly believe they would have the Lord's favor. It's a kind of, we want God by us, around us, but not in us. And today we learn the detriment of this kind of half-hearted commitment as we continue in our series, That Guy, Hey God. But first, previously on That Guy, Hey God. The book of Hey God is composed of a message the prophet Hey Guy preached to a remnant of the Jews who returned to Jerusalem after the exile of Babylon. They returned to rebuild the temple, but they became discouraged, if you remember. They, they, they got there, they started to work, then they stopped because discouragement got in the way, and they gave up on the project. For 18 years, 18 years, nothing was done to God's house. Then in 520 B.C., God sent an alarm clock called Haggai to wake up and shake up and challenge the people. He said, you're saying you don't have time to build the Lord's house, but come to find out you've been working on your own house. Y'all got Viking range stoves. Y'all got custom fitted cabinets. You got in-ground swimming pools. You got, you got heated bathroom floors, but yet my house is a wreck and a mess. So serious was his challenge that the people responded positively and set to work to rebuild the temple of the Lord. Are you with me this morning? The last two weeks, our issue was that they had stopped building the temple twice. First time, it was due to their ops and inward indifference. And the second, it was due to discouragement. But what is our issue today? It's not the working on the temple because the people had accepted the challenge to rebuild God's holy temple. The issue today is not discouragement, not indifference, and not the ops. The issue today is the people are treating the work they are doing for the Lord as a lucky charm. But friends, listen to me good, lean in on this, you're going to want to hear this. God is not interested and half-hearted obedience. God is not interested in half-hearted obedience. The text says on the, 12, on, the 24th, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. So I really want to make sure we don't skip over verse 10 here. Because 90 days into building the temple, God has a sort of end of probation period check-in. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. When you go to a job, they give you about 90 days. In 90 days, they're going to evaluate whether they want to keep you or not. 
90 days into building the temple, and God has to address them. And these people are doing the job, but they're doing a horrible job. Can I stop right there? Some of y'all can relate to that. That you have people that do a job, but they do a horrible job. Have you ever had somebody do a job and they don't do it to their full ability? They don't do it with excellence. You say, if you ain't going to do it right, I might as well do it myself. Uh-oh, I didn't touch somebody out there, Corey. I didn't reach somebody, I didn't touch somebody, so somebody going through something. I sure hope their employer, uh, employee is not here today. Uh, but to put it simple, y'all, three months into the job, and things are not going well. Evidently, the attitude of the people is that mere contact with the temple makes them clean in God's sight, while in fact they are living in sin. Are you following me? They are treating the temple like a lucky charm. We can live how we want to because we go to church on Sunday. Uh-oh, online people, or we go to church online. I figured I better wrap them on up in this. It's the kind of thinking that says we can live how we want because God is forgiving. Oh, God doesn't care if I sleep around because before I go to bed, I pray. I thought serving in the church was like, was like what, all, what, what all spray is to mosquitoes. You know, I, I really appreciate me some off, y'all. Because I don't, I don't typically like mosquitoes, and I don't know a lot of people that do. They bite you. It's one thing to bite me, but to leave an irritant is a whole different ball game. Just take what you need. Don't leave me with the itch. That's all I ask. Have the blood. You know, just don't leave me with the itch. But when I put on that spray, y'all, I step out in that backyard, like, man, I got all the power in the world. I spray, I spray it all over. I get the neck area. I get everything. And when you put that on, you go out there, you're not worried about no mosquitoes. And, and, and some of us treat the ministry that way, that, that, that if we pray, God will keep bad things away while we walk in this kind of arrogance in our sin. And friends, this kind of thinking is demonic. It's a hijacking of the gospel. The gospel is no good luck charm. It's not a bad fortune repellent. The gospel is not meant to be a get out of hell free card. Jesus came not just to die for our sin, but to deliver us from our sin. And doing the Lord's work is not what cleanses us, it is turning from our sin to the gracious mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the beauty about the gospel is that the gospel doesn't just deliver you from the consequence of sin, but it'll deliver you from the power of sin. Because when God gets a hold of you, it ain't no I might change, I may change. When the power of God gets down on the inside of you, Something happens to us. We go through a sort of metamorphosis, if you will. That, 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 that when Jesus got out of the grave, 
die out of amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord, somebody, because there's some folks in this room, you ain't who you used to be. And it ain't because you better than nobody. It ain't because you didn't figure something out. It's because the grace of God has been good to you. It's been merciful to you. Oh, grace chased you down when you were running from grace. Uh, that one preacher said it this way, that God loves us as we are, but he also loves us enough not to leave you as you are. You see, coming to church or serving in ministry doesn't magically make you holy. It doesn't matter if you get into church if you never get into God. On the contrary, these people, their sin is desecrating the temple. That's the meaning of verses 11 through 14, a kind of parable applied in verse 14 to the people like this. So it is with this people and with this nation before me, says the Lord. So with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. So even though they have begun to obey the Lord by working on the temple, their work is unclean because of sin in their lives. Okay, y'all not with me yet. Let me try the back door here. And what God is demanding is not just their work, but their hearts. What God wants is not just their hands, but he wants their, their hearts as well. Because, you know, if we're keeping it a buck, if we're going to keep it a hundred, it's possible to do something and withhold your heart at the same time. It's possible to do something well and hold your heart back at the same time. Y'all still not with me yet? I don't know why y'all make me do this. Well, I, gotta get, I just got to get real pointy in. <laughs> Many of us do it in marriage all the time. We do marriage while withholding our hearts from our spouse. It's possible to have, let's say make love because kids are in here, with your spouse while not giving them your heart at the same time. Oh, y'all not going to talk to me this morning. But I'm coming to your front doorstep and I'm ringing your doorbell. We have churches that will give money to Gary, but will not step into Gary. Okay, okay. No, this ain't cute. Because it's possible to withhold your love while expressing an outward commitment. In fact, this is what keeps most of us in toxic relationships so long. He or she does so much for me, though, Pastor. They, I know they just got to love me. Because people can do good while not loving you at the same time. This is also the kind of work that leaves most of us confused when we wake up to another celebrity couple not making it. We say, but they look so happy on social media. Because we humans can project whatever we want people to believe on social media. And on the other side of that screen is the polar opposite. But with God, you can't fool him. Your hands can't trick God. Your hands will not fool God of what's going on in your heart. These, uh, 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 in the New Testament, God puts it this way. These people honor me with their lips. 
but their hearts are far from me, which means that you could be singing songs in here and not have a relationship with God, which means that you can run a lap around the auditorium shouting, yes, Lord, and not even know him. Oh, yes, it's possible. I've seen it. If you are living in half-hearted obedience, you may be fooling us, but you're not fooling God. And many of us, are asking God, I run laps around the auditorium. I've opened my mouth and gave you praise. I started working in ministry, and God, what I don't understand is this. Why am I not blessed? God's like, I don't bless mess. Pay attention to verses 15 through 17 as God explains to these people why. So what Haggai does is respond to this imperfect obedience is the point that the people is to point the people back to the to, to the great turning point in their experience when they began to work on the temple. So verses 15 through 17, he tells the people to consider what they should do now. He says, consider in view of how life was for them before they started building the temple. Let me take you back down memory lane. In other words, hey guys, I want I want to take you back to the time in your life when you turned away from God. I want to take you back to when, to, to when you were doing things your own way. I want to take you back to the time in your life when you thought you were smarter than God. I want to take you back to the time in your life where you thought that you were better off without the body of Christ. And I want you to take you back to that time because I want you to remember the fruit of your life. And some of us right now, we can testify that when God was void in our lives, the mess that our lives were, the mess that we found ourselves in. And some of us found God where? At a dead end. Because sometimes we will not, we, we will not relinquish or surrender to God until we have no other option. Until my bank account can't save me. Until my mama and my daddy can't save me. Until I come to a dead end. So he says, in other words, recall how miserable and frustrated you were in your disobedience before you began to lay stone on stone in the temple. God is basically saying, aren't you tired, baby, of doing things your own way? Aren't you tired of playing church? God says, aren't you tired of living a double life? Aren't you ready for real change? Aren't you ready for resurrection life? Aren't you ready for a vibrant spiritual life, baby? When you going to stop playing games with me? When you going to realize that if you ever turn to me, I got grace and mercy waiting for you? When are you ever going to learn that, that, that if you depend on me, that I got you? When you going to stop playing games, people of Haggai? Why worship me with your lips void of your heart? Because you know how that ends. See, God is no good luck charm whom you get to use and dictate for good fortune. God doesn't care about your work more than he cares about working in you. You know, these people, these people, this lineage, these Jews, you know, they, they have a history of trying to play God. Yeah, they do. 
They, they have a history of this sort of hypocrisy with great expectations for God to bless them. They, 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 this is not the first time they tried to play God. You find this very, very obvious in 1 Samuel, the fourth chapter. It reads like this. I got to see this. Oh, oh, this is incredible. It says, now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. Now, for those of you who don't know your big biblical history, the, 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 the Israelites in the Philistines had real beef, y'all. No, the, the, the gangs didn't have beef like they had beef. The GDs in the mold, never mind. I mean, so, so, some of y'all don't know that. Let, let, me, keep, let me keep going. Uh, uh, they, 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 they had real beef. They had real drama. If, if social media was on around this time, uh, it would be so much shade between the Israelites and the Philistines. There will be subliminal texts going on. Y'all know about those, right? I'm talking to you, but I ain't really talking to you. So if you come to me, I'm going to say that I ain't, but I'm really talking to you. And so the text goes on. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphath. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of their homeboys. That's just my translation. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, watch this, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? So they go to fight, to defend themselves against the Philistines, and they're defeated. And when they're defeated, they're confused because in their mind, we got God on our side. How in the world can we go into a battle and lose? And some of us can relate to this because there's been situations in your life where you said, God, I did X, I did Y, I did Z, and I thought, man, you were cool. How in the world can I lose this battle? They go in, fight with the Philistines, and the Philistines whip their tail forward, and backwards. So the people sent man to Shiloh. Now watch this. They say, we lost. We know what we're going to do. So the, so, so, so the people sent man to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty. I need to park here because I want to make sure that everybody understands what the Ark is. The Ark was, well, was this kind of like square thing. I want to get too deep into it, but, 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 but to make a long story short, it's where the presence of the Lord was supposed to rest for the people of Israel. And before they would go into battle, the ark will go in before them, right? God goes before us, right? And so, and, so, and so oftentimes, even in the book of Joshua, what you would see is that the people would win the battle when God was with them. And the ark was a sign that the Lord was with them. The text goes on to say, who's enthroned between the cherubim and Eli's two sons, Hapha and Phineas? These guys are a trip. You ought to read about them. To make a long story short, these jokers ain't right. We're there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord Covenant came into the camp, now watch this, this is where you get in, very, very interesting. All of Israel raised such a great shout, and the ground shook. The Ark comes in, and when it shows up, all of the people start shouting so loud 
that the ground began to shake. They're praising, they're celebrating, because they feel that now that God has showed up, that they're about to get the victory. Now watch this. Hearing the uproar, cousin them over there, no, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh, no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hands of this mighty God? Now, as you can see, that these people don't understand that he is the God, that he is the only God. But from their understanding, he is one of many gods. They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be man or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be man and fight. And so the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was so great, Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. 30,000. The ark of God was captured and Eli, Susan, Hanover, and Phinehas had died. What's going on here? They thought that God was their good luck charm. They said, let us bring the ark into battle and God will fight for us while simultaneously not being right with God. And oftentimes what we think is that we can go into a battle without allowing, without surrendering our lives to God and that God just going to show up because we told him to. God says, you know what? I'm going to step back. And I'm allow you to be defeated. Why, God? So that you can know that your power does not come from you. That your deliverance does not come from you. I need you to understand that you don't control me. I need you to understand that you don't get to clip me onto your belt and ignore me into the next battle. I want you to know that I'm no lucky penny that you tuck in the back of your pocket and you ignore all week long. I'm not that kind of God. Now, these people see the ark, which is the place God's presence rested in the Old Testament, and they get pumped up. They start yelling and celebrating that the ark is here, their lucky charm is there, but God is not. And the result is that they suffer defeat, and they wonder why. They're like, usually when we bring the ark in, we win. They're looking back at the battle their ancestors won with the ark when it came in. But what they don't realize is that when they won the battle, their ancestor, it was because their hearts were right with God. And oftentimes we can look back at folks and we can say, man, it looks like God is blessing them. But what you don't understand is that you are, we have to surrender some things. See, some of y'all look at people's marriages and you say, man, their marriage looks pretty. You don't understand the things that they had to surrender and give up to the Lord. And we assume that they went through the motions. But no, it's not just about going through the motions. It's about giving God all of you. Can it be that you're going through the motions of what you've seen your grandma and your grandpa do? You've seen them go to church. You say, you know what, I'm going through a hard time. Let me just go to church. In your mind, you thought that God was their good luck charm. But what you don't know is that they had a relationship with him. 
Oh, the old folks used to have a relationship with God. If they'll be washing dishes and humming in the middle of that, who are you talking to? I'm talking to Jesus. They had a relationship with him. And friends, at some point, a good luck charm is going to take you so far that at some point in your life, you're going to have to have a real relationship with God. And the reality is, there's no such thing as a good luck charm. There's no such thing as a good luck charm. I got people give me all kind of velvet prayer cloths. I thank them for it. I, but is there really power in that velvet cloth? You can have that cloth all you want. If you ain't got God, ain't no power in it. Because we don't need luck. We need God. And essentially, yeah, you give God praise for that. And essentially, y'all, what God was trying to encourage the entire time with these people is this. Yes, return to the Lord's work, but more than that, return to God. And this is what is so amazing about this guy, Haggai, is Haggai is a reminder that our God is a God of second and more chances. If you study the book of Jonah, you'll learn that our God is a God of second and more chances. And I just said more chances because some of us didn't just have two chances. Some of us ain't just had three chances. And some of us ain't just had four. Some of us didn't have five. Some of us didn't have six. Some of us didn't have seven. Some of us didn't have eight. Some of us didn't have 25. Some of us didn't have 50. Some of us didn't have 100. When I get to your number, you ought to stand on your feet and give God praise. Some of us didn't have 150 chances. Some of us didn't have 200 chances. Some of us didn't have 300 chances. Some of us didn't have 1,000 chances. Some of us just stopped counting and said, God, I thank you that you're better to me than I am to you. God, I thank you so much that you're so good to me. I know that I've been unfaithful. I've been, I've been good. I've been jacked up. I've been messed up. But some of us can testify that I'm standing here today because grace has been better to me than I see some of y'all not standing yet because, because you ain't realized how messed up and jacked up you are. But some of us came here this morning because we on our 50th chance. Okay, let's keep it a buck. I don't know about you, but sometimes I scratch my head and I say, God, I don't even know why you're still dealing with me. I'm, I, I, uh, you, y'all ain't never had that moment where you're like, Lord, I'm just going to keep it a buck with you. If I was you, I'd have been done with me. Okay, y'all not going no, I mean, you ain't never pulled yourself out of coat collar and said, come here, self. I'm surprised the Lord's still dealing with you. Because he's a God of second and more chances. And until you feel that for yourself, you'll never understand the power and the significance of his grace. This is true not only for individuals like Jonah, but also for groups of people, even entire nations, such as the Jews in today's reading. Not only has God been gracious to you individually, now I need y'all to relate here. I got so much grace that I'm going to get out. Now, Lord, 
I have been gracious to two people. I didn't read my quota this week. Them other three, <laughs> they get wrath. <laughs> they getting grace. Uh-uh. And Nick and John took that one. <laughs> you getting the law. <laughs> but what amazes me about God is not only he's gracious to one person, but he's gracious to an entire nation. Oh, I wish I had a church this morning. That God got enough grace for all of us. He got enough patience for all of us. Can I brag on his grace and his patience? Oh, God got enough for all of us. He, he says, I got enough grace for all you Jewish folks. He sent Jonah over there to the Ninevites. And Jonah said, Lord, I don't want to go over there. Those, I don't like those people and they don't like us. And I know, and, and Jonah says this, watch this. Jonah says, and I know you. I know you. I know that you're merciful. And I know that you're forgiving. And I don't want to go over there and tell these folks about your grace. I, okay, can we be Jonah in the building? There are some folks that you don't want God to forgive. Can we be honest? There are some folks. You got to leave one person on your list. You say, Lord, ain't no way they making the cut. <laughs> Not the way they cut me. <laughs> they can't make the cut. And Jonah goes over there and he preaches eight words. And the entire nation repents and turns to God. And once again in the scripture, we begin to see the magnitude of God's grace. Neither Jonah was worthy of God's patience Patience or his efforts, but God's love continues to find us where we are. The fact is, is none of us are worthy of God's love. But God came from way up there and came way down here and walked with jacked up, messed up people for, for 33 years. And after he Past the thousands, and after he opened the eyes of the blind, and after he opened deaf ears, and some of y'all favorite miracle is when he turned water into wine, but keep on tracking with me. And after he raised the dead, and not only did he raise the dead, after that, they, 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 they put nails in his hands. And didn't they put nails in his feet? Oh, didn't they, church? Didn't they put nails in his feet? And then they put a crown of thorns on his head, and then they pierced him in the side. And didn't he die into death died, church? But early, I say early Sunday morning, he got up out of that grave, not with some power, but all power. And with that kind of power, he draws you and I to a relationship with him. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross that we are able to come back. And what Haggai is saying to the people is turn to God because his arms are wide open. That if you would turn from your ways and turn to him, his arms are wide open. Oh, you ought to rejoice over that because his arms should be closed on you. His arms should, should, should not accept you. But, but, but this is the thing about God is that God is so loving that his arms are wide open. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Let me ask you this. Are you? Are you, no, yes, 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 you, 
are you, are you, are you, are you, are you enjoying the blessings of a close relationship with God? Or do you need to turn from your sin and renew your commitment to him? Come on, let's be honest. Let's be real. What sin are you holding on to this morning? What reasons are you afraid to turn to God? You see, as we prepare to cross into a new year, as we prepare to pack our bags and move to a new building, as we prepare to go from Bethel to flourish, what I want more than ever is for us to prepare our lives. You see, Flourish Church is is not Jesus. Flourish Church can't give you a fresh and clean and new beginning. Serving flourish can't wash away your sins. Only Jesus can do that. But church, what I want us to get right today, and and what I want you to see is is God sometimes takes us into troubled waters, not to drown us, but to cleanse us. This is what he does to the people of Haggai Day. In today's reading, Haggai calls upon the Israelites to consider their ways in light of the poor harvest they had experienced since returning from exile. Prior to resuming the work of building a temple, they had seen only poor harvest and empty barns. This was true of all crops, including the staples such as grapes and olives and more exotic items such as figs and pomegranates. Not that what God wanted them to understand is that the lack that they were seeing physically was also a mirror of their own spiritual condition. Now, I know that figs and pomegranates don't mean nothing to y'all, because y'all can go to any local grocery store and get it. But sometimes God hit us in different categories. God will hit you where your joy resides. God will hit you in your peace category. And some of y'all, God will never get y'all attention until you hit your pockets. In the case they had noticed, their hollow spiritual condition correlated with their meager return for their physical labor. All they did turn out poorly because God made it turn out poorly. And God will allow us to face disappointment to reveal our hearts to us. Because God doesn't want you to clip him onto your life. God doesn't just want you to Stick ministry in your back pocket like a lucky penny for, for, for a bad day. God is not going to bless Flourish Church because we are going to do work for him. Because it is possible for Flourish to offer living bread to everyone else and never taste living bread ourselves. Oh, it's possible for us to offer living water to everyone else and never take a sip ourselves. We can't think Flourish will flourish because of what we are going to do. But instead, if we're going to flourish, if we're going to flourish, if we, the people of God, if we are going to flourish, if we who are called by his name, if we are going to flourish, if you are going to flourish, you got to have God not clipped on to you. You got to have your life anchored in him. He wants our lives to be rooted, anchored to him who saves. God wants your life to be in him. I'll leave you with this. 
there's a lesson for these people in the very temple they are building. Emmanuel Carter helped me to see this. It's a bright sister. He says the temple they were rebuilding was made of a tree called the Cedar of Lebanon. Now, these special trees were used by King Solomon to help build the temple. They were not known for their appearance, but they were not the most attractive trees. No, they weren't. They were not known for their height, and they were not even the tallest trees. No, that's not what these trees were known for. These trees were not known for their, the, uh, 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 these trees were not known for their leaves. These trees were known for their strength. If y'all stick with me, I'll preach this morning. These trees had special roots. As the tree went up, the roots went down. But the roots wouldn't just go down. They would keep going down until they hit a rock. Are y'all not with me yet? The roots contain a chemical in them that allowed them to drill into the rock as to anchor themselves so that when the storms and the pressures of life came, they would be hit, but they would not fall. The wind would blow, but they would remain standing. And friends, what I'm telling you, what I'm trying to say to you, is you ought to be like this tree. Anchor yourself on a better rock. Anybody know what rock that I'm talking about? Oh, I'm talking about a rock that does not move. I'm talking about a rock that when the storm comes and the waves blow, it'll make sure that you keep standing. Let me just give it to you like this. You ought to root your life in Jesus so that when the wind blow and the pressures of people and social media and marriage and singleness and drama blows, you'll still be standing. Don't clip God on in your life. Don't put God in your back pocket for a rainy day. But anchor your life in the king because he is a sure rock. When you feel overwhelmed, anchor yourself on this rock. When you are afraid, stand on this rock. When you are uncertain, stay on this rock. When trouble and fear are great, sometimes just lay on this rock. God's no lucky charm. God is God. And when you build your life on the rock, what you will discover is this. Although you may lose your job, you will not lose your mind. Although you may lose your health, you will not lose your peace. Although, you, although your plans may change, you will not lose your joy. You might be pressed, but you won't be crushed. You might be perplexed, but you will not be despair. You may be persecuted, but you will not be abandoned. You may be pressed down, but you won't be destroyed. The Lord is our solid rock, and he will not be moved. So God had them rebuild the temple because he wanted to live with them. And we get to the New Testament and we discover he wants to live in us. May the Lord draw us there. And as we venture into this new season of church, may we be reminded that God is not impressed by our hands, that he is not in our hearts. That God is no good luck charm, but he is a firm foundation for us to anchor our lives in. He is God Almighty.